She saw him leave that morning, but he didn't come back that afternoon. He didn't show up that night. Nobody heard from him. The teen's body was found in a rolled up gym mat in a high school in 2013. His death ruled accidental. Say my name and remember what you've done. Your hurricane has blackened out the sun. You can't continue to kill unarmed black people and get away with it. But if Kendrick did die of an accident, how, with all that distrust, how could you even ever show that? But then on the flip side is they didn't treat it like it, it could have been a homicide. Lowndes County Sheriff Ashley Polk announced officials were reopening the investigation. Only angle is to find justice for my son. You are currently listening to Ashes to Ash TV, the investigation of Kendrick Johnson, season three, episode nine, Witnesses. And were you pretty convinced at that point that it might have been Bruce that had done something? One thing that's really important in all these cases is really going over the police report with a fine tooth comb. The problem with what a lot of these cases is if they're active and open, a lot of times it's really difficult to get the police report. In KJ's case, I think what's kind of interesting is the case had been closed for probably about six, seven years in there. And during the time it was closed, the police report seemed kind of readily available to people. A lot of people had gotten it at some point or another or news sources had retrieved the police report. The problem when we started the case is probably 11 days into us starting the case, the case got reopened, which was obviously great news. We want the case open because then there's a chance that it can get adjudicated and someone could be brought to justice. I think the problem is, is that once we started, they were no longer forthcoming with the police report or having it in its entirety. So luckily we have a lot of great partners out there who were able to get us the majority of the police report. We have about 300 pages of it. In the studio with Bree, she tells me. So while you're on the phone, I got an email from someone, the Ashes to Ash email. Okay. And it's a Kendrick Johnson case file and it's 300 pages. Wow, I wonder if it's like the, the full police file. I know at one point news sources were getting 500 pages, so I'm curious what the pages are that we don't have and what we're missing. So if anybody's watching who has the full police report, more than the 300 pages, or if you think you have anything we might not have, I'd really appreciate you sending that to us. The email address is ashland57 at gmail.com. We also have that at the end of the episode. So if you do have anything you want to send us, please just do. We can keep you 100% anonymous and just use what you sent us in an appropriate way. That's how we initially start these cases. We really comb over every aspect of the police report and then we decide who we should speak to following that. This case is a little different because it's gone on now for eight years, nine years, and there is not only a lot of stuff via the police report, but also through social media and things that have been leaked to the press. We have to kind of take the media and how they've been interacting with these case also as part of the information gathering process in the beginning so that we can decide who to talk to. Going through the police report, one of the first people that really jumped out was a gentleman named Bruce Brown, who was going to school with Kendrick at the time. We had been seeing stuff on social media where Bruce Brown was considered a suspect, where he had subsequently been beat up. We weren't quite sure what the circumstances were surrounding that interaction exactly. But one thing we want to do here on the show is either 
look at a theory that was posed and decide if it's accurate or not, if we should follow it or not. And this is one of those ones that we initially, right out of the gates, were like, oh, who is this guy? And why did people think he had something to do with KJ's death? And there's more in the police report about that. And he also is somebody I would like to just chat with at some point to kind of find out what exactly happened from his own words. But I think the police report is pretty clear on Bruce Brown's role in the potential crime here. So on January 11, 2013, a woman by the name of Jaquia Smith had gone to the police department to report some suspicious Facebook post she had seen by another one of the students at Lowndes County High School. I think is what's interesting about this is when she goes to the police station, it's the day that KJ is found deceased. So this is happening immediately after his body was found. She basically goes to the police station and talks about these posts that she saw. And when she recalls the post, she's saying, when you start messing with goons, bodies start showing up. Right after KJ was found deceased, it sounded like there was a kid named Bruce Brown who had posted on his Facebook something about goons were going down or something. Do you remember that at all? I didn't see it, but... Oh, someone had told you about it? Yeah, the kids at schools were saying something like that. If that had been left so close to KJ's time of disappearance and then subsequent his body being found, I could see why somebody might immediately think, could this be connected? Especially because it says goon's bodies start showing up. So that suggests to me that they're talking about people are being killed. While sitting with Kenyatta, Kendrick's sister, I ask. And were you pretty convinced at that point that it might have been Bruce that had done something? Yeah, that's because the kids was there. I mean, it had just happened. So the kids was, that's what the kids, you know, they were still letting the kids switch classes and everybody was coming up to us saying all kind of different things. So we ain't really know. We just went with that at the point at that time, so. In a Fox News report, they read, What I cannot understand is it's a body of one of the students, yet they feel it's okay to continue with classes while investigations are happening. It's Friday. Send those children home and bring them back on Monday after the crime unit has left. Yeah, everybody was coming up to us saying all kind of different things, so we ain't really know. We just went with that at the point at that time. Obviously on Facebook, people write things all the time and that's not what they literally mean. So in this case, it could be taken literally. And I think that's what this young woman did is she took it very seriously and took it to the police to have the bravery to come forward if you do see something that's concerning. I think now we need to really figure out if Bruce Brown had anything to do with this. And I think the police report pretty much clears this up quite well. So I think what make the, this part of the story so incredibly important is that Bruce Brown ends up subsequently getting beat up later that day because of these Facebook posts, because rumors start going around the school that Bruce is responsible for KJ's death. And pretty soon it reaches Kenyatta, who is KJ's sister. And obviously she must be in a heightened state of awareness because of what's going on with her brother. And when she hears this, it seems like her and her group of friends must have taken it pretty seriously that he was somehow 
involved in KJ's death. And that was really the thing. It was just people telling you guys stuff and yeah. that somebody had seen a post on Facebook mm. that said that supposedly. So when this starts to get really weird is here in the police report, it says at approximately 1.25 p.m., Detective Marion was advised by Lieutenant Stride Jones to respond to an address in Valdosta and meet with Valdosta Police Department units in reference to an assault which occurred. Detective Marion, while responding to the location, was advised by Lieutenant Jones that the party assaulted was Bruce Brown and had possible contact with the deceased Kendrick Johnson. And so after you guys roughed him up a little bit, did you guys pretty quickly come to the conclusion that it wasn't him or did you think it was him for a while? So the cops are called at around 1.25 p.m. the day that KJ's body is found because Bruce Brown has now been assaulted. I think it's interesting that these Facebook posts that he possibly made start this kind of waterfall effect of what happens next. The victim, which is Bruce Brown, stated that a group jumped him, leaving several marks on his person. On January 11th at about 1.45, the cops responded to an address for a physical dispute. Upon arrival, they made contact with Bruce Brown. Brown stated he was standing on Front Street with Booger, talking about Kendrick Johnson's death when Kenyatta Johnson pulled up in a blue vehicle with several other subjects. He stated Kenyatta exited the vehicle, looked at Booger and said, what the fuck is he laughing about? Brown stated two other vehicles pulled up, one four-door white car and one other, a gray Jeep, and a large group surrounded him. He heard Kenyatta say, you killed my brother. And then he said, Thule came up to him crying and struck him in the face. He stated next thing he knew, he was on the ground being hit by several of them. Brown stated he was being struck in the head with what he believes was a silver pistol. He could not advise who was hitting him with the pistol. Brown stated he then went into an unknown person's apartment at Ora Lee and called his guardian, Emma Austin, and told her what had happened. He stated he got a ride from someone to his house on Collier Street when Austin called the police. I asked Brown why he did not call the police. He stated he did not want to go to jail for the death of Kendrick Johnson. He stated he thought we would think it was him who had killed Kendrick. I asked Brown why they would think he had something to do with Kendrick's death. And he replied with, man, how do I know all this? And you all don't, you all are supposed to be on top of your game. How are y'all just going to leave me out there like this? Photos were taken of Brown's scrapes on his feet, shoulders, and a scratch on the left side of his rib cage. So I think that's the kind of main meat and bones of it. I'm not judging anyone. I feel bad that Bruce Brown was potentially beat up for something he may not have done. So I'm not trying to bring this up to shine any light on that that was a negative decision on Kenyatta's part. I think that the family was going through a lot was probably just reactionary at that time, not knowing what had happened. And that Facebook message did seem very alarming can understand why someone made that connection obviously i don't agree with vigilanteism i think there's probably a better way but please understand that kenyetto is very young and bruce brown sounds like he is okay so not that that action was okay so when they go to react to the assault that's happened to bruce brown it sounds like then they bring him in for questioning when he comes in for questioning he seems to be very forthcoming. He talks to the cops. He signs a waiver of his rights immediately. And they have him already in the police station by 3 p.m. So it sounds like they were taking this seriously. Plus, he was assaulted. So I'm sure they were taking that seriously. So then Bruce Brown kind of written out what had happened the day he was assaulted. And here's what he had to say. 
Last night I was at my sister's house about six to seven. My homeboys took me to McDonald's, then I went in the house for the night. This morning, woke up, walked to Orly West, and coming back home, back and forth. About one, I was talking to my homeboy, and he was telling me that somebody got found dead at school. Then my mama pulled up and told me that the word at school that I killed them, and I said, how did I kill him and I don't go out there or been out there in so long? And then she said that the police probably gonna come pick me up, and then she left. And I walked on Front Street, and then I was chilling, and Kenyatta jumped out of the car yelling at me. Then two other cars came up. Then I see someone jump out, and two other carloads. They was all crying. Then they hit me. I tried to hit him back. Then everybody hit me, kicked me. Somebody hit me with a gun. They ran because they seen the police, but the police didn't stop. So I went to somebody's house that I don't even know. They let me use their phone. Then a lady outside took me home and my mama called y'all and now I'm here. Jaquia Smith, the woman who initially came forward with reporting that Bruce Brown had had some not so appropriate Facebook posts said, I, Jaquia Smith, saw the status that Bruce Brown posted on Facebook saying when you mess with goons, bodies show up. The young man Kendrick and his friends already had altercations with him previously because they were saying that another young man named Clemens was messing around with Bruce's girlfriend, Titi. So they all started going at it on Facebook. Then Bruce said he was going to kill them all one by one. I think what we see here is a potential altercation between Bruce and this gentleman named Clemens over a young lady. So I think that kind of could explain why he posted what he did out of anger. Not that it's okay to post that bodies will be showing up for any reason. And to use the word goon seems incredibly inappropriate to me. So I think that if that was just out of anger, I could understand why someone would write that. But I also think we need to understand what his alibi was for that day to make sure there was no connection. Finally, at some point, it appears that a woman by the name of Emma Denise Jones comes forward and says that Bruce Brown was at her house all day on the 10th from noon to about 3 p.m. And really, if you've heard any of the news reports, that kind of is the time frame when everyone believes that Kendrick ended up passing away or getting trapped in the mat, depending on what you think happened in this case. If somebody was not in school and had an alibi from noon to three, I think is what the suggestion is, is that would clear them from having any involvement in KJ's death. Basically, Emma states, Bruce Brown was with Emma Denise Jones on January 10th, 2013, the same day KJ went missing. In Oralee West, he was here around noon to three. I mean, really, if that's accurate and KJ did end up disappearing between the hours of noon and three, it does seem that it gives him a pretty good alibi. And then even to further that, Kenyatta, who is KJ's sister, seems to not believe that Bruce had any involvement. After that, did you guys pretty quickly come to the conclusion that it wasn't him or did you think it was him for a while? We still had in view his body at a point, so... Maybe like a day later, that's when we figured out like it wasn't him. After they came back and told us like how he passed away that day then, like, yeah. I think with the fact that nobody seems to be pursuing this Bruce lead anymore, I think that kind of makes me think that this was put to bed. He probably wasn't involved. He seems to have an alibi. The family seems satisfied that he wasn't involved any longer. So you don't now have any thoughts that he mm -mm. could be a suspect? I mean, it didn't no. seem like it from the police report and it seemed like he had a pretty good alibi, but I still mm. like to ask just in case you guys were still like, no, it could be. I do think that that's one theory for right now we can set aside and kind of put in the category of we don't think that Facebook post was linked to KJ being 
murdered. I think that we can put that to bed for now. And obviously, if anything else comes up, we'll, of course, continue to pursue this lead. I just wanted to break into the episode really quick and remind everybody to subscribe on the website if you can. That website is www.ashes2ashtv.com. A-S-H-E-S-T-O-A-S-H-T-V.com. Obviously, I always hate asking people to subscribe because that includes paying us a monthly subscription fee. But please understand that all that money goes just right back into helping us solve these cases. We have to have funds to get the travel to the places, to hire experts and lawyers to continue to try to adjudicate these cases. And so all that costs money. We definitely don't make any money with the show. It all goes back into trying to solve these cases. And so if you can subscribe, it helps us greatly. So we'd really appreciate it. And if you do, you can do that right on the website. And you do get a bunch of special perks if you do subscribe, which are listed there on the website. You can check that out. And of course, we always keep the show for free because that helps us get in tips and that's what allows us to solve these cases. So if you can't subscribe, please just help share the content because the more people we have watching these episodes, the better chance we have of solving these cases. So thanks for all your support and back to the episode. Well, I had been asking people for help with getting more information on the report. Someone had sent me this YouTube page for a Nora Jasmine, Nora Jasmine True Crime and Conspiracies YouTube channel. I was a little bit concerned at first because her stick is that she wears this tinfoil hat that says, hear me out. And that immediately made me think conspiracy theories, which obviously we do deal in conspiracy theories here because sometimes those theories actually end up being accurate. That did concern me when I first got it. As I listened to her episode on Kendrick Johnson, she actually had a lot of really good documents within her episode and actually analyzed those quite nicely. Even though she's a very unique character, I do think that she really came to the table with some solid information that we'll be using even throughout our episode here. I think we're taking a look at Nora Jasmine is her name and it's the Kendrick Johnson episode is what we'll be referencing throughout our episode here. Within her video she had two documents which were gentlemen who came forward kind of claiming that they either heard or somehow knew what had happened to Kendrick the day that he went missing. I thought that was really interesting and to further on that it seemed like both young men ended up in jail after coming forward with this information. So I kind of wondered why that happened is the information not good? Were the people unreliable? Were the people lying? Why did they go to jail after? These are all questions that I really need to have answered so I can understand if their written statements had any validity whatsoever or if they were hoaxes. The first person that we wanna talk about, his name is Ray Chauncey. And he had come forward with a story. So this is the same year that KJ went missing. On Friday, July 18th, Dalton Chauncey came to the Lowndes County Sheriff's Office and relayed that he had been present during a conversation in which two individuals made admissions that they caused the death of Kendrick Johnson on January 2013. According to the statement given, he only knew the first name of the individuals and that a third person whom he did not know was present and heard these admissions. That seems pretty compelling already, obviously, if he's telling the truth. We go on. Investigators immediately began conducting interviews specifically of the person who Chauncey stated was present and heard the conversations. This person denied ever being present or having heard any such conversation. Attempts to identify the two unknown persons were unsuccessful based on the information given. Okay, so, so far that makes sense. Someone comes forward, the police are thinking it might be a hoax. They go and try and talk to the people that the person who came forward mentions and those people won't corroborate it 
and they can't even find out who the other two people were. Now, I think the point here is, obviously, if you had hurt Kendrick Johnson and the police came and tried to verify that someone had told them you had hurt Kendrick Johnson, would you admit to that? I doubt it. I mean, I feel like that's usually something people don't share automatically, that you have to show evidence or proof until they start to open up about what they may or may not have done. It does seem likely that someone would lie if Chauncey's story is accurate. Because they weren't able to corroborate it, the investigators go back and they meet with Chauncey. And from there, this is what's said. On Wednesday, July 23rd, investigators again met with Chauncey and explained to him the inconsistency of his statement and the lack of ability to verify the conversations with witnesses. He admitted that he had fabricated the story while at the home of his friends in order to boast. He also clarified that two persons who he vaguely identified were fabricated and do not exist. So that's interesting, right? So now I feel like with him saying that and coming forward that he doesn't probably have any quality information. So I kind of felt more comfortable putting this to bed. But then what really concerned me is later on, Michelle Chauncey, Dalton's mother, comes forward. Michelle Chauncey alleged sheriff deputies kept coming and coming at her son during questioning about his statement. Two Lowndes High School seniors told him they killed Johnson over an issue about a girl. She described his admission as sarcastic. Michelle Chauncey went on to say, I'm upset. I believe my son. He didn't lie. He just made a statement of what he heard. If you're going at him constantly, he's going to tell you whatever you want to hear. So I thought that was really interesting. And I think we've seen in other cases where people have either been scared off of telling the truth by authorities or they have told truths that weren't real because of authorities battering them. So is that the case here that happened with Dalton Chauncey? Did he come forward with a true story or something he really heard? And then the cops coming at him again and again made him to finally be like, uh-uh, okay, I don't want to be involved in this and just retract the whole story. I think it's interesting someone as close to him as his mother is saying, no, 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 I believe he was telling the truth and that the cops just scared him off of telling the truth. I kind of felt like I was feeling good that we'd be able to put this one to bed, but now I feel like I need to talk to Dalton and Michelle to find out if there was any parts of his statement is true, who he was talking about when he did come forward because I think it's really important who these people were and are they somebody who is a suspect already. So that's going to be a big one, talking to Dalton and Michelle Chauncey. We are looking for their contact information, so if anyone else out there has it, please help us out by sending it. Or if Michelle or Dalton is watching this and want to clear up what happened here, uh, I would be grateful. I also understand that Dalton may have gone to jail after this. I think that's one thing we have to look into further to find out, did he go to jail because of this confession that he heard, or did he go to jail for some other reason? So then also watching her video, another person's name comes up who I had heard before. This young man's name is Ryan Anthony Dominic Hernandez, and he also comes forward, but he comes forward in 2017 with a story. So when Ryan Anthony Dominic Hernandez came forward, this is basically what he said. My name is Ryan Anthony Domek Hernandez, and I am over the age of 21 years of age. I am giving this declaration voluntarily, and I have personal knowledge of the facts stated herein and know them to be true. On one occasion, was with him at his apartment in Jacksonville, Florida, when he told me that his younger brother killed Kendrick Johnson. 
Ashes to Ash is created by Ash Patino, associate producer Kate Giordano, assistant editor Jenna A. Bush, crew Bree Blankenfeld. Title music is the song Bones, produced and performed by Eight Graves. Web design for Ashes to Ash TV website was done by Second Melody, secondmelody.com. Subscribe on the website for commercial-free content, early access to episodes, uncut interviews, and discounted merchandise. A-S-H-E-S-T-O-A-S-H-T-V.com. Ashes to Ash TV.com. To follow us on Facebook, please go to Ashes to Ash True Crime. On YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram, Ashes to Ash TV. If you have a tip, please email us at ashland57 at gmail.com, A-S-H-L-A-N-D-5-7 at gmail.com. We can keep you anonymous. If you know of a legal activity involving this case, please reach out to your local law enforcement. 